Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes, brought to you by Harrells. This is your host, Jack Harrell III. Our Turf Dudes are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there. If you have a topic suggestion or know of a Turf Dude with an innovative work in the field we should feature, please let us know at turfdudes@heralds.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Jason Frank and Dr. Raymond Snyder as they discuss plant health strategies and trends for turf managers with Dr. Philip Harmon from the University of Florida's Plant Pathology Department. Welcome to this Harold's Turf Dudes podcast. I'm Raymond Snyder. I'm here with Dr. Phil Harmon, turf pathologist at the University of Florida in Gainesville. With us also is Jason Frank. He's the Harold's Florida Sales Director. And we're here today to discuss Dr. Harmon's turf pathology program, his turf disease diagnostic lab, and turf disease management trends and strategies. You know, my, my main thrust as a turf pathologist is the turf diseases and preventing turf diseases yep. and, uh, and evaluating options, both the chemical and the cultural management options that we have, and trying to come up for guys, uh, come up with ways that are both efficient and going to be effective at preventing disease and then also dealing with disease when the inevitable outbreaks occur, even for the best superintendents. So, um, you know, as part of my program, one of the most important things in that process is to uh, know what it is that you're trying to fight, because we do have a lot of options available as far as chemical fungicides that are very effective. They tend to be, uh, today, more specific Mm -hmm. and more also efficacious than in past years, but because of that specificity, it's put an increased importance in, in my program and I mm-hmm. think in Florida in general on diagnostics. And you mentioned our uh, turf diagnostics as uh, one of our offerings. Uh, we do have a couple of different services here at UF and a couple of different labs. The one that I manage is called the Rapid Turf Diagnostic Service. Uh, we try to give a rapid turnaround of 24 to 48 hours from receiving the sample to our best guess of what's going on based on the initial culturing. We use some different media. We do plate every sample that we get to look for the fungi versus just looking at symptoms. Because basically the symptoms uh, are only so many and so few that can occur and how a turf mm-hmm. plant can die. And so uh, what we found is that by growing the, the fungus or the pythium or whatever it is out in the plates, we get a better diagnosis, we get a more tailored response, and we get a more efficient response to that disease threat and uh, and help the guys to recover from it more quickly. Is that different than what some other diagnostic labs labs yeah. do? So uh, most diagnostic labs that are associated with the university are going to plate out some of the samples. They're going to look at it under the microscope. They're going to take it a step further than uh, just looking at the sample and associating symptoms or any fungus that might be present with the, the symptoms in the place that they're receiving the, the sample from. Uh, private labs are good too, and they do a good service. A lot of guys use those, but typically it's just involved and it requires specialized equipment that a private lab may or may not have to be able to take that turf and take it two steps further and plating it out and identifying the fungi. And so where we can have a, a benefit to, to what we do is where we have pathogens that are difficult to find or that takes some time to grow out and that aren't obvious from the symptoms. And that, that includes a lot of our root pathogens and a lot of our common pathogens that cause issues on our ultra dwarf putting greens in particular. So we like to see uh, samples plated out. And uh, of course, there are lots of university labs that do that, including ours uh, and some of, the, some of the private labs as well. What are some of the 
the do's and don'ts of taking the sample <laughs> and sending them to you. Yeah, definitely. We've got that uh, that dreaded uh, insufficient sample reply. That we right. How do we out. avoid the insufficient sample? We hate that one. And, and you know, basically, we want to have turf that is not dead okay mm-hmm. what we say in the lab is that dead turf tells no tales mm-hmm. right? if it's dead <laughs> it's too late and that pathogen is only there for just so long when it's interacting with that live stress turf before the turf dies and then we have what we call saprophytic organisms that come in they push that pathogen right out they grow right over the top of it and outcompete it to decay that dead turf so we have to have live tissue number one Number two, uh, airification cores are generally just not enough. Mm-hmm. We can't see a symptom mm-hmm. signature in the, the airification core. We need something around the size of a cup cutter okay. core. works pretty well. And and two is better than one. Um, and uh, Two of, from the same vicinity. symptom area or a, or a un, no symptom with symptoms or, you know, what's the mix there? Both. We like to have a couple of uh, representative samples of the symptom that's causing concern. So a couple of cup cutters of the symptomatic turf with about uh, one-third healthy turf, two-thirds showing that symptom that you're concerned about is the proportion that we want to see. And then if you can include a healthy plug from the same green, same turf species, that helps us to look. And we may find that we have pathogens on the healthy that are not directly causing the uh, symptom of concern. So that, that's what helps us out with that. So uh, yeah, ample material, getting it to us with a third and two thirds healthy and diseased, not dead, and then getting it to us quickly. Uh, if we have samples sent snail mail, they, they will rot in the mail, especially in the Florida sun. Mm-hmm. It just gets hot in there and it kind of steams the sample and it can limit our ability to pull yeah. those pathogens out. So try to get it to us as quickly as possible. You're always welcome to drop it off for guys from Seven Rivers chapter or for mm-hmm. guys who are local enough to do that. Uh, we're here and if I'm around, I'm happy to look at it with them. Sometimes we can come up with some things right off the bat. Um, otherwise, uh, next day or two day, UPS or FedEx or DHL all work well. Uh, U.S. Postal Service works okay, but we have one extra day on campus sometimes when it lands in our, our UF mail uh, versus uh, going direct. So even that next day sample may take two days U.S. Postal. Uh, so getting it to us quick, getting ample material, making sure it's still alive. Those are some of the most Packaging important. Packaging it. Packaging it is important to try to keep the soil in that turf sample from uh, contaminating. And, and so what we, what we recommend is using a plastic bag to seal it. And before you put it in a plastic bag, use some aluminum foil or saran wrap or something like that to, to keep that root zone together and to mm-hmm. keep the soil off of the turf canopy. That's ideal. Um, we don't need to add any extra water because it'll just rot quicker, but we don't need to dry it out or anything like that either. We can seal it up, send it to us. It'll get a little bit of incubation time on the way to us. And then we can take a look at that under the microscope right away. After 24 hours, we have some plate results, and then we, we can get that preliminary diagnosis out. We'll follow that up in about a week to two weeks after everything grows out as a traditional diagnostic sample would be done. Uh, but for turf superintendents, we found sometimes that two weeks is too long. Right. And, uh, they right. can't wait. So that's why yeah. we do the preliminary. And most of the time, we're right on with our preliminary uh, that we base on the symptoms, what comes out after 24 hours. But also, what did, we, what did we just see last week on your neighbor's course? What mm-hmm. did we see from that region over the last 16 years that we've been doing this uh, on Tiff Eagle Putting Greens specifically? So we do pull back at some historical information and, uh, and base some of our diagnoses on that. 
even when we can't necessarily find in that 24 hours the pathogen that we think is causing those rings or that patch or whatever that, that symptom is. Now, if someone had observed some disease, maybe a spray tech got out a little bit ahead and treated for it, at that point, should we just not even send the sample to you? Great question, and one that we get a lot is is that very thing. We sprayed, can we still send it? Should I take a sample, spray it, and take a second sample? Uh, basically, no. If we can, we want to get the sample before we apply the fungicide that we're going to apply. Um, it's still okay and worthwhile to submit a sample after the spray. We have in our, our verbiage from the, in the diagnostic reports that um, if you noted on there that you just sprayed it right before you took it, it may delay the growth of that fungus from the sample. Uh, and so it may not be in that prelim. It may take a couple extra days before we can update you and tell you. So generally, we're still able to diagnose it, but it may be that it, it, it pushes it back a couple of days. Uh, some guys like to uh, take the sample um, after a couple of weeks after application when things start to look a little bit better. And, uh, and they uh, relay that, that they're doing that because they're afraid the pathogen is still in there and they can't see it. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a little tricky because generally, you know, the diagnosis is dependent on those symptoms being present and the pathogen being present and, and us knowing that that combination during that time of year and environment can cause disease. So uh, while we can sometimes find and we'll report pathogens in there, if the symptoms don't match or if there are no symptoms, we'll let them know. It looks like the fungicides are working. Pathogens still in there. Keep up the spray program. Keep up the horticultural inputs or whatever it is that's, that seems to be working at the time. Now, we often focus on putting greens, but do you receive samples from zoysia lawns, all different turf settings? Absolutely, yeah. We take turf from, from all settings, uh, all the way from sod farms to residential, uh, high-end athletic fields, municipal athletic fields, golf courses, uh, all over the all over the case, uh, all over the state. We get uh, samples that uh, um, also include some forage. Um, so grasses of any kind, we get them. And uh, some of the diseases are the same. Obviously, the the uh, horticultural inputs. Do place different stresses on these grasses even the same species that are grown for different uses are going to have a very different specific set of disease issues that we're likely to encounter so uh, we do get them we do try to tailor that uh, recommendation and that diagnosis to the particular site area that's that's being um, uh, being utilized with that turf grass how, how long have you ran the lab for here at university of florida We've, uh, we've had a diagnostic clinic at the University of Florida uh, since uh, the 1950s. Okay. Um, I started in 2003, and in 2006, we instigated the uh, Rapid Turf Diagnostic Service with the help of the Florida Golf Course Superintendents Association and the Seven Rivers Chapter of the Golf Course Superintendents. Uh, we came up with some money to fund a student that uh, is dedicated to turf grass samples and that, that helped us to develop the protocols and the extra media types that we use to make a rapid turnaround feasible. Because basically in, in 2003 when I got here we had a handful of golf course samples even though we had in Florida uh, one of the, the highest numbers of golf courses for any state. They weren't using the service because it took too long. So we've really worked with the industry to try to tailor it to their needs and uh, as of last year, we're doing eight to 900 samples per year uh, from wow. Florida. And we also, uh, last year, received samples from 22 other states uh, in the United States. I was going to ask you about that because people yeah. listen to these from potentially yeah, all over the world. And I was curious about 
how broad was your the scope of your your reach in receiving these samples? Yeah, that's a, that's a, one of our our um, pride and joys of this uh, clinic that we have is it's a fairly new building built in 2013 and it does have a containment room in the center of it. It's negative airflow. It's certified by the uh, USDA APHIS folks to be able to receive turf samples from anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. Anywhere in the world. Cool. The outside of the country samples require prior notification in a specific form that we can send out ahead of time. So wow. we can't just receive shipments direct. We have to know about them and we have to make sure that they're inspected on entry into the country. So there are some restrictions. But uh, within the continental U.S., within the United States, we can receive samples direct. We have permits to do that. Uh, and uh, uh, over the, the period of time that we've had this ability, uh, we, we've received 350 or so samples from, from uh, 10 to 12 different uh, countries around the world and uh, continue to, to uh, receive primarily warm season turf grass, primarily golf course and high-end athletic field samples from, uh, from all over the world. Our focus is still Florida. Yeah. Uh, number one, and uh, but we can learn things from doing samples outside the state that sure. are beneficial. To Is us. there any unique trends or things you've learned over time from running this lab that you've kind of seen? Yeah, definitely throughout the years. Definitely, we've had uh, new pathogens pop up in the time that we've doing that we've been doing this. It's uh, really been a nice program that feeds into my uh, research program. It feeds into my teaching component of my uh, my job here at the University of Florida as a professor. Uh, because I've had graduate students that have taken on these new things that pop up to try to describe and to characterize what these new diseases are, the etiologies or how these diseases affect turf, and then novel management options for our turf Absolutely. managers that can, can deal with these new things. And we've, we've had quite a few. So what are some of those new diseases that you've kind of seen pop up over years? So uh, one that comes to mind is, is uh, Waitea sersonata variety prodigious is one uh, pathogen that's related to Rhizoctonia zea, okay. causes leaf and sheath spot. Yeah. Uh, seashore paspalum is a grass that, that's uh, had some increase in popularity and a little bit of decrease in popularity throughout the years. But after its introduction into Florida, uh, we found a number of new and interesting diseases, particularly on that grass uh, during the early 2000s through the uh, 2010s. And um, this uh, basal leaf blight was one that we described there. It's similar to Rhizoctonia zea leaf and sheath spot, but uh, has some differences and is specific to to a seashore paspalum, and then we also found some microdochium disease, and, and guys look at you yeah. like you're crazy when you <laughs> right. say microdochium because they think pink snow mold. Right. This was actually a paspalum-specific microdochium that occurs uh, in Florida only on paspalum and, and, and has some very unique uh, fungicide sensitivity profiles, so we characterized that and came up with some some uh, interesting things there. Uh, new patch diseases continue to perplex us on these ultra-dwarf greens. Uh, you know, we have Gamanomyces graminus, variety graminus, and, and Bermuda grass decline. But uh, within the last two years, we've also had an increasing number of distinct patch-type symptoms being sent in um, that have different structures, different fungi associated with them. Mississippi State's been doing research. Clemson's been doing research. We've been doing research to try to further characterize those and, and really differentiate what management inputs can help to uh, to prevent the specific diseases, not just kind of lump them together uh, as, as decline or as uh, uh, root, root issues. Root now, you mentioned decline. Has that been somewhat renamed take-all? 
So the, what's the relationship between the two yes, and the gametomyces? Yeah. And I've yeah. been hearing a little bit more about that. And I, I think there are some who are potentially uh, maybe less clear on what they are and, and you know how they relate to one another. Sure, yeah. So the pathogen that we're talking about uh, historically has been Gamanomyces graminis and variety graminis. When that pathogen occurs on Bermuda grass, the disease name associated with the symptoms that include decline is called Bermuda grass decline. That's the disease caused by GGG, uh, Gamanomyces graminis graminis. So GGG on other warm season hosts have been given uh, that disease that it causes has been given a different name. And so when it occurs on seashore paspalum, on St. Augustine grass, the disease name typically uh, referred to as take-all root rot. Okay. And uh, take-all uh, patch is another disease, a different disease that occurs up north on our big grasses. Uh, these are these are uh, different but related fungi in this, in this uh, group. So Bermuda grass decline or warm season uh, root decline of warm season grasses, another way to, to put it. Uh, names that are that are uh, symptoms and, and disease complexes caused by the Gamanomyces pathogens. So in, in terms of the, the frequency of which you make diagnosis, what are the top three, four, five that, that you are see most prevalent during the course of, of a year? Yeah, so what we find is that we routinely diagnose the same types of pathogens from our, our samples. And so I'm pulling up here uh, a list of our 2018 diagnoses. And these are not the most um, common diseases that occur because superintendents and other turf grass managers can easily identify dollar spot. A dollar spot is very common, but not very economically important on our warm season grasses uh, in most cases. And so uh, what we find is that we get diseases that can be difficult to diagnose, that are not responding to fungicides as the superintendent or management, uh, man turf grass manager expects them to, uh, or that occur in odd times of the year or different than, than the actual um, expectation for that pathogen. And so take all root rot is one of um, those that, that uh, occurs on, on uh, seashore paspalum, on St. Augustine grass, on uh, our, our, uh, I like what you had there with that saying. So, so for you have them broken down by each grass. Yes. Right. And so for St. Augustine, in terms of the frequency of observation, it's that what's your, your top five there are take all root rot, gray leaf spot, and then pythium would be the top three diseases that, uh, that we get on samples and, and, um, those are for the, the 2018 year on St. Augustine grass. The fourth one there is, is sugarcane mosaic virus. causes a, a, a mosaic disease. It also can cause on Floratam something new that we're calling lethal viral necrosis. Uh, and so that's kind of a new thing that's popped up in the last five years or so. Any specific region of the state that which you observe that virus most prevalent? That is prevalent in Palm Beach County as well as Pinellas County, and it is mm. localized to those areas, and it has spread uh, from those areas, but it is uh, it is fairly... Um, Any thoughts to why just those two particular geographic regions and not others? We don't know. It's It has spread out, but it hasn't been as prevalent where it spreads okay. uh, from where it initially occurred. In, in Palm Beach uh, uh, County, it occurred in areas that were... 
high-end monocultures of Floritam. It came in and, and killed a lot of lawns, um, and that, then it uh, kind of spread out from there. But if you have a mixed lawn, it'll only attack the Floritam genotype in that lawn. And so it, hmm. I think it may be a little wider spread than we know at mm -hmm. this point, but the impacts have been uh, fairly minor where you have don't have Floritam specifically. And that's fatal. That's not treatable. Lethal viral necrosis is fatal to the Floritam. Yeah. Or to the Floritam. And, uh, it takes a few years for it to build up, three or four years uh, for it to kill all of the Floritam. You get some recovery each year depending on the, the weather, and, uh, but, but very little and you get a lot of weed encroachment. Main thing we're doing with the diagnostics is to make sure folks know it's out there and not to try to use fungicides to manage this viral disease because fungicides work great for the fungal diseases. Yeah. They don't do anything for this virus and so what we have to do is to switch genotypes of grass um, and uh, so put something Switching the grass is the only solution there's no proactive prevention or anything that could yeah prevention is is tough we we know it can be spread on mowers which we can yeah. have some control over sanitation there but where we have uh, sanitized mowing equipment uh, it really hasn't had a huge impact and that's probably because we have a an insect vector of the disease as well that we that we can't control is not a major pest problem, but they can move this virus around and jump from place to place. So luckily, it's been um, it's been localized. It's been a major problem in Palm Beach County, but fairly localized there. It has spread down through Miami and the Keys, and it has spread up. We have reports of it in Vero Beach, as far north as Vero. Mm. In Pinellas, it's primarily in Pinellas and South St. Pete has been reported in Hillsboro, but hasn't been a major issue to date. Uh, we're definitely watching it. It's something that... What's the telltale about. sign that that is, is likely the, the cause of the decline? Is there anything that jumps out at you or so, you walk up on the yard and you're like, that's it? Yeah, you look for a very specific pattern of, of discoloration on the leaf blades of the Floritam. And uh, the other thing that you look for is the symptoms will become very severe right about this time of year, October, November, and it's associated with cool evening temperatures. When the cool evening temperatures come, these viruses are activated. They go from being a yellowing type symptom to causing a, uh, a necrosis or plant death. And what you look for is, is broken vertical lines of yellow to brown to red discoloration. And we have an EDIS publication with some pretty good pictures of, okay. of exactly what that looks like. Uh, if, you, if you search for mosaic and St. Augustine grass. Okay. But uh, any questions about that can be directed to me or to the plant disease clinic and, and happy to talk about it. Has not been a problem on golf courses. It doesn't affect Bermuda grass. It doesn't affect um, seashore paspalum or zoysia grass, but the Floritam specifically. I'm looking at your slide here and I don't see, unless it's under a different terminology, often hear about brown patch in St. Augustine. Is yeah. it is that this is that the same as the large patch? Is that disguised it's, as another name there, or, or are we using the wrong name to describe it in St. Augustine? No, historically brown patch has been used for any disease caused by rhizoctonia and turf grass. Okay. In Florida, we have two very different brown patch diseases. And so we've differentiated in our recommendations and our EDIS publications between large patch and brown patch disease. Brown patch disease occurs in the summertime. It's a foliar blight and it doesn't cause uh, much in the way of, of uh, economic losses. Other, in other words, the turf grows out of it and St. Augustine grass will become blighted. It looks sometimes very impressive for a few days, 
but then the grass grows right out of it. This occurs in August and in early September. It's done by the end of September. The grass will have recovered. Large patch disease, on the other hand, is a disease that occurs uh, now in the panhandle through winter and, and spring in South Florida. And that disease, large patch disease, also Rhizoctonia solani, a different subgroup of Rhizoctonia, infects the crowns of the plant, kills the turf plant, and can take much longer for the turf to recover from. So mm -hmm. it can be an economically important problem, an aesthetic problem uh, for lawns in particular, zoysia grass lawns. Um, and so that is one that we, we recommend fungicides for and prevention because we have some really good products to, to prevent that damage. Brown patch occurs, we get a few samples of it each year, but generally it's a, it's a minor concern in the summertime. Gotcha. So uh, there's a good, I think, and we'll have our listeners. Maybe you can provide us with this this PowerPoint. Yeah, sure. And we can Absolutely. we can we can uh, have it available to our, our listeners if they want to see what we're we're seeing here because this is yeah, great absolutely. information. So the next one, I like the way you have it laid out there, zoysia. Yeah. That um, that's be zoysia grass, and I guess are we talking about the the home lawn empire type zoysia, is that what we're seeing here? Yeah, so zoysia grasses, uh, we received the majority of those from home lawns, um, and uh, we've had a spike in number of samples within the last four to five years. Largely, those samples come from uh, lawns that are established with sod. The sod within the first year to year and a half will fail and will die, and then we'll receive samples. and. Um, in many cases, what we what we receive is actually a sample that doesn't have a pathogen as a primary cause, or no mm. pathogen found as a diagnosis that we give. And what we find is that we have site prep issues, irrigation system issues, or other uh, cultural inputs that haven't quite been right to get that zoysia grass established. And so, with zoysia grass, we we do get take all root rot. We do see curvularia and pythium and other diseases, but. Uh, we also see a lot of samples that come in that don't have disease and that, um, that just have not received quite adequate care or inputs or uh, preparation of the site prior to sod install. Well, this brings up a question that I had, was thinking about yes, yesterday for you. Curvularia, that is, is that a, a, looks like it is a true pathogen of, of grasses perhaps uh, across all the different turf types? And it's not just a secondary, um, you know, advantageous fungi that's occurring as a result of other, you know, cultural practices or fertility or whatever they might be. Yeah, good, good question. And the answer is it depends. Unfortunately. Okay. Okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. But if you take a, an ultra dwarf Bermuda grass growing in a greenhouse under ideal conditions, and you apply curvularia to it you will not see any symptom. If you have an ultradwarf Bermuda grass green suffering from damaging nematode populations, other pathogens, drought stress, etc., those stresses will make that grass more susceptible and you can have curvularia jump on. The term that's used sometimes is synectopathic. Once it starts to, to senesce, curvularia will speed that process. Mm -hmm. uh, so Bermuda grass is pretty resistant to curvularia when it otherwise is healthy. If you look at, at curvularia on zoysia grass, you get a little different story. You can find distinct discolored purple patches of turf grass that uh, have sporulation on green, otherwise healthy tissue. So curvularia, uh, as a general term, refers to, to 10 or 12 different species of fungi that can infect turf. 
and they vary in their pathogenicity, they vary in their ability to cause overt disease symptoms versus synectopathic increase in, in senescence and in plant stress. And so generally, uh, zoysia grass, seashore paspalum are considered uh, susceptible and they can have uh, true diseases on otherwise healthy grass. Ultra dwarf Bermuda grass greens are more to the other side where you can have curvularia causing issues. Fungicides can help to prevent losses, can help increase turf recovery, decrease the time it takes for turf to recover. Um, and if you look at something like an athletic field, you'd rarely ever find curvularia on a Bermuda grass athletic field causing an issue. So it varies depending on plant stress, horticultural inputs, etc. Um, they certainly are pathogens and they certainly can cause problems for us here in Florida. So if you have a curvularia diagnosis on a putting green, yes, potentially you should address that disease. However, you're also probably more get more value if you also address the primary cause that's helping to perpetuate this disease. Then. Absolutely, yeah. With our putting green diagnoses, we rarely, if ever, will give a primary diagnosis for curvularia on the Bermuda grass. What we'll find, though, is that curvularia is there. We'll give it what's called a secondary diagnosis, and you're exactly right. You have to look to see what other stresses are occurring. If those are within your control to manage through that first, fungicides may help to, again, reduce the time it takes for recovery after that damage or prevent additional damage and, and decline in turf quality as you move forward. But uh, generally, we recommend looking in other directions first and, and address those problems. Is curvularia specific to maybe certain environmental conditions or time of year, or is that just something that can occur year-round based on the way you're describing it? Curvularia as a, as a fungal group of species is very common, and we see it on senescent turf clippings. We mm -hmm. see it on turf that's died from heat, heat uh, or any other chemical or physical stress, curvularia will quickly come to start to degrade. And so it's it's present year-round, okay. and it can cause issues for us anytime we have stressed turf. Um, it is more likely to, to be a problem where we have wet, humid, muggy, poorly drained mm -hmm. conditions that mm -hmm. favor other fungal growth. Okay. So, so the top three, four, five list here in, in zoysia are, uh, you got Take-all root rot, yeah, curvularia, uh, pythium on, on leaves and roots, um, no path found. So that no path, again, you know, it's a common <laughs> diagnosis. Not disease, look elsewhere. Yeah. And then uh, and then dollar spot uh, can look weird on zoysia grass, and it can occur even with higher fertility rates and, and programs. Uh, and so homeowners and sometimes even managers can be fooled, and they'll send us that sample partially because it looks different, partially because sometimes it doesn't respond the way that they think it should to the fertility increase or the, the fungicide that they're using. So you have a large patch up there for zoysia grass. Is is that somewhat, you know, it's not your most uh, popular, for lack of a better term, <laughs> right. but, but it may just not be sent to you Maybe because it's already self-diagnosed. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, large patch is pretty distinct with its orange borders and the time of year it occurs, and most of our zoysia managers know about that and, uh, and can self-diagnose it. Where we get the samples are where, uh, again, it doesn't quite look like they expect, or they've applied a fungicide and they're concerned about uh, fungicide sensitivity. We don't see resistance in the large patch pathogen population. We haven't yet or ever. 
but uh, but we do check that from time to time. We'll we'll grow it out, um, and we can do that as an added service in our rapid turf diagnostic service for dollar spot for for large patch or whatever is the concern, particularly when we suspect a fungicide product failure, which is rare. All right. So what what grass is next? We have uh, centipede. Yeah. So in my extension presentations, I, I uh, routinely got that question. Yeah. Like, what about centipede? Right. Where we get samples. Fifty-five <laughs> total samples. Interesting. Uh, that that we did get of centipede grass. Almost uh, all of those, maybe two or three of those, were sod related. Others are, are are almost entirely, of course, home lawn use. And, uh, and we get some interesting and some different diseases. Anthracnose is one that's towards the bottom of the list, but that does occur primarily on the centipede grass. It occurs up north on the Poa and Bent, but uh, down here we can also see it on our centipede grass lawns. Some of the others are, are familiar, like the take all root rot. Pythium uh, can be a problem on all of our turf species. When are you seeing the pythium samples show, arrive with as it relates to centipede? All year round, specific times of the year, early, the, you know, where do you, when do you generally receive those? Most knowledge? of our pythium problems are gonna be on in the shoulder seasons that we call the, the shoulder seasons where basically day lengths are starting to decline, light intensities are starting to decline. And, uh, and when we have uh, that condition, in addition to wet, perennial soil saturation of an area that's poorly drained or that's receiving XX irrigation, that's where we're going to be most likely to see pythium root rot uh, come into something like a centipede grass. If it's on a well-drained soil and it's receiving adequate but not over-irrigation, um, generally we're not going to have that much of an issue. But but um, pythium is another one. You could, you could make the argument similar to curvularia mm-hmm. where you have to have something else wrong, whether that's nematodes also munching on the roots or, or something else causing some, some severe stress to get pythium to cause an issue. We report it because uh, it can compound the stress, it can cause additional problems, and where we have pythium-specific fungicides for these types of sites, um, they are specific only to pythium. They don't necessarily provide any kind of uh, control for any of the other pathogens that we have up there that can cause uh, similar types of symptoms. So including one of those products that is specific for pythium in a rotation, uh, not necessarily on centipede grass, but on some of the other grasses where we're more likely to apply, can help us to, um, again, have a positive outcome as far as our turf yeah. quality increases. And so let's see, we've done St. Augustine, Centip- uh, Zoysia, Centipede. Do you have Bermuda, Bermuda grass greens? Yeah, this was a presentation given, uh, I just realized, given to uh, Landscape and Sod Management. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so I, I, I do have it, but I don't have it pulled up on my on my computer uh, right now. But I can tell you that, that um, top of the list is is uh, going to be the, the Bermuda grass decline and the Gamanomyces. Um, over the last 15 years, that has been a consistent and perennial issue for turf managers. Um, and it causes the most problems where we have other stresses, as I've said before, with some of these diseases. Pythium uh, pathogens are common and another one of the top five that always occur uh, each year in the top five on, on uh, ultra-dwarf putting greens and Bermuda grasses in general. Uh, no path found is always in the top five. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. I'm not arguing with the guys that are having issues. There's definitely an issue there and it can look very much like disease. 
but uh, sometimes we can't find a pathogen that we can pin that that disease problem mm -hmm. on. I think that. Dr. Kearns would concur yeah, with that. I think yeah. I think 50 or so percent of the samples he's yep. received are also fine. no pathogen found. Yep. So. Yep. And that's a good honest diagnosis. You know, I yeah. mean, when, I, when I tell guys that, I say that's a good diagnosis because, you know, you can look other other places for that potential cause of that. And and uh, maybe fungicide is not the right, right. response in that yeah. case. And, and that's a good, good, honest diagnosis. Sure. What particular times of year are you seeing the Bermuda grass decline be the most prevalent? So it can occur any time of year that we have stresses. Uh, Monica Elliott did some, uh, Dr. Elliott did some work here at UF kind of characterizing that disease and, and found that it was active in the fall. It is, continues to be active throughout the winter um, and spring. And uh, what it does is basically affect the root system in such a way that those Bermuda grass roots are not able to take up water and nutrients. During the winter period, when you don't have a lot of turf response, you don't, mm -hmm. don't, don't have a lot of growth. And you have uh, the most play and, you have and the most, most stress. Yep. <laughs> you can have a tremendous amount of stress. Um, you're syringing, you're trying to keep those, uh, those greens going. Um, and sometimes that'll work and the fungus will be there and you'll never know it. And then when we hit the, the springtime, you get the elevated temperatures, you get uh, excessive moisture followed by dry periods and that then compromised root systems not able to keep up with mm -hmm. the light intensity, with the amount of growth that's being uh, demanded by the plant, just given its environment. And the so nematodes are starting to take nematodes, off. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Crow's nematodes are killing <laughs> Confluence us all, of events there. <laughs> so, what are some of the management practices or maybe programs that you can proactively address, you know, trying to stay ahead of the Bermuda grass decline? So, with Bermuda grass decline, we do recommend some fungicides preventively, uh, particularly on putting greens. Um, there are a number of different groups of fungicides that have efficacy and are labeled mm -hmm. for gamanomyces and Bermuda decline. We typically are going to recommend that those be applied most importantly during the shoulder seasons, during that time when the pathogen is active, when the turf is still growing but vulnerable and not getting ideal conditions. Um, as far as cultural management inputs, thatch management is important. Reducing stress in general is important. So. Mowing height, mowing growing, height. raising, and mowing. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for us to say these guys are under a lot of pressure, but right, yeah, definitely. just even a little increase perhaps Where can they help can, a lot. A millimeter difference can cause uh, can help with reducing stress, and, and is certainly recommended. Irrigation management is important with compromised root systems because of the nematodes, because mm -hmm. of the fungus. Uh, we have to be careful not to drought stress these these greens. Heavy, deep irrigation is not always the best answer for us uh, when we have compromised root systems that only go a half inch or three quarters of an inch into the, the greens mix. So careful irrigation, thatch management. Um, there are some soil tests that we can do, and it's kind of debatable whether those, uh, those alterations or, or changes in horticultural agronomic inputs have lasting effects, but where we have high soil pH, high salt loads, other stresses, we do tend to see more severe symptoms of Bermuda grass decline than where we don't. And so uh, managing your uh, soil health, managing your uh, fertility, and trying to uh, manage the pH of the greens mix where possible by choosing management options that help to kind of lower those pHs uh, are generally recommended mm -hmm. as well, but can be difficult to realize, can be difficult to employ. Now, Jason asked about programs to help minimize Bermuda grass decline, that brings the larger question, you know, what is your general philosophy as it relates to 
to um, fungal pathogens in turf? Are you more towards the philosophy of being proactive with programs, fungicide programs, or see and spray reactive? I mean, you know, what what's the what's your consensus on, on that? Yeah, and this is a really important point because um, in each case where we've done the research, where we've looked at large patch, where we've looked at bipolaris, uh, leaf spot melting out, uh, where we've looked at pythium problems, grass decline, it is always more efficient and you get better results when you apply your management options preventively where you know you're going or likely to, to have disease issues and using products you know are likely to prevent those those disease issues, you can use lower preventive rates on the label mm -hmm. and uh, longer generally application intervals. So uh, where it's a little bit counterintuitive to spray before you see the disease, it is, uh, and we have the data to show it, more efficient to do so with that zoysia grass that is going to get the large patch, mm -hmm. with that Bermuda grass that's going to get the leaf spot. If you treat it early on, you use less product, you yep. use longer intervals and you get better results as well when guys get behind the eight ball and they've already got damage from disease the disease is generally two weeks ahead of you at that point it takes right. a couple of weeks for infection to materialize into symptoms uh, and so you're you're behind and uh, it's it's difficult to get turf growth and recovery particularly in these diseases that occur in the fall winter and spring when we have the most play when we have conditions not ideal for growth and recovery so you're behind the weather's not in your favor. The play is the the highest, yeah, and you're trying to recover from a condition that may have been somewhat debilitating, like a pythium or one of these others. That's yeah. not a good combination for success. Definitely not a good combination. And some of those things we can't do anything about. There's right. going to be play, and there's going to cause stress, and you're going to have to mow load sometimes and increase speed, etc. But uh, for the pathogen side or layer of that stress, we can use some fungicide and when we can really do a good job of reducing or, or eliminating that factor within that uh, that stress issue that you're dealing with through that, that time period. So if you're building a program, obviously the most important part of the program is to be effective at managing the diseases. And then um, does one also want to consider resistance and and look at the labels and the codes and built into that program an awareness of reducing resistance yeah so when trying to, to build a program um, a couple key key factors one you want to follow label instructions and label instructions generally are going to have some resistance management language in there uh, you want to be aware of all of the products you're using and, and which groups of fungicides or which groups of activities those products have and rotate or follow those label instructions carefully. You also want to know what it is that you're fighting, what it is that occurs on your course or on that problem green. So that where, that's where it ties back into the diagnostics and going ahead and submitting that sample and confirming which of the pathogens are causing that decline and that thinning uh, in this year versus next year and then Developing that database of information can help you to tailor that program for your specific green or your specific problem area or your specific course. So uh, I think it's really important to know what it is you're fighting, to know which products you're applying and what groups they fall in, and then uh, to follow those management 
recommendations on the label for resistance management as well as using a combination of contact and systemic single site products to 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 really get the most out of your your investment but also reduce the chances of of failures or other unintended consequences of doing so excellent well that's a lot of information let's create an opportunity where you can promote you a little bit you know explain if you're uh where people can find you on the internet on your website i mean what's what's the web address obviously they could probably search for you how, how do we get a hold of you the best sure yeah easiest thing to do is go to turf.ufl.edu turf at the university of florida uh, we'll direct you to a site where we've got a description of the Rapid Turf Diagnostic Service. You can download the form. If you're out of state or, or international, um, there's some additional instructions there. Um, and uh, that will link link you out as well to our extension publications through our EDIS system. EDIS is where we have uh, some, some of our publications with these management recommendations. Um, but all of our contact information for all of the turf faculty at the University of Florida is at turf.ufl.edu. And are you going to potentially be on any speaking circuits with FTGA or anything like that? I'm a pretty regular uh, speaker within the FTGA. Okay. Uh, I'm also... Regional uh, seminars? I do some regional seminars. I don't get to every one of those every year right. by, by far. Uh, I do try to get to a few each year. Um, we have a turf field day coming up. Uh, in each year uh, in the Central Florida. We also have turf field days down in Fort Lauderdale and out in the, the Panhandle with Dr. Unruh as well. And so uh, we have UF activities, we have FTGA, we try to hit the uh, Sports Turf Managers group, the sod grower mm-hmm. groups. Um, I'm out around the state uh, so quite a bit. Quite so a bit, likely right. Likely into you one place or another. Yeah. <laughs> Good, well, we appreciate that. That's a wealth of information there. We thank you for for all that. Uh, we'll make the some of those slides you showed us available to yep. our to our listeners. And we appreciate your time. Thank you guys for, yep, for coming you. today, and uh, yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you, and, and happy to provide some info and to, to see you guys uh, pushing out the good word. So keep right. up the good work. Well, that'll wrap it up for this Turf Dudes episode. We appreciate. It. We got Jason Frank here, Dr. Harmon here. I'm Raymond Steiner, and thanks for listening. And we look forward to uh, reaching out to all of you again sometime soon. Thank See you. you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes. Send Dr. Schneider and the Herald's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments or to be featured in an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. Turf Dudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S.